1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 is where we're going to start reading in just a moment. We need to recall as we jump back into the middle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that this whole chapter is essentially one great big idea. It's a flow of thoughts for the Apostle Paul. That's important because as we read chapters like this, um, we tend to sort of break it up and our mind hits the reset button and we're not always putting everything together. But inside of this chapter, we need to remember that Paul is making sure that what the Thessalonians, what Christians believe to be true about Jesus Christ is connecting to the way that they actually live. The way that they live now needs to look more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the world around them. So these are brand new young Christians that he's writing to. And we've got to remember that when we read a book like this, we're not in the position of the Apostle Paul teaching others. We're in the position of the Thessalonians listening to what the Apostle has to tell us about life in Jesus Christ. So let's remember a couple of things about this entire chapter together. First of all, we may remember that Paul wants to make sure that the Thessalonians learn how to live so as to please God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Don't forget that we've taught you how to live so as to please God. And then their growth in Jesus Christ is at stake. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that word sanctification is just our word, the biblical word for maturity in Jesus Christ, becoming more like him and less like the world all the time. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And their witness to their city and to their neighbors is at stake as well. We're going to read in chapter 4, verse 12, where he says that you may live properly toward outsiders. So this passage of Scripture is in its way highly practical, as a matter of fact. But it is a practice that is based on their belief in Jesus Christ and how the Holy Spirit has been at work changing their lives. And so it is with us, guys. Our growth in Jesus Christ is at stake. Our witness to our neighbors and to our city, this is at stake as well. So in the passage that we're going to read this morning, we're going to listen to the Apostle Paul tackle three things, and we're going to call them this morning gifts, graces that God gives inside of our lives so that we may learn to please Him, we may grow in our sanctification, and we may be witnesses to those who are around us. The first gift that he speaks of is the gift of brotherly love. This is the love that we have for each other as people who belong to Jesus Christ, the kind of love that belongs to the family of God. And it's even, as a matter of fact, the love of friendship. So it's the gift of brotherly love that God gives us. And then a gift that some of us, a lot of days, don't believe is a gift, but is nonetheless. It is the gift of work. God created us to create. We are made in the image of the Creator God. As the Apostle Paul puts it in our passage this morning, we're created, in fact, to work with our hands and in so doing to show our love for each other. So our gift of brotherly love and the gift of work. And then, guys, this passage at the end of chapter 4, which is probably one, the one that we know. If we know any passage in chapter 4, this is probably the one, and it is the gift of our eternal hope. The Thessalonian Christians had grown worried 
In fact, they'd grown afraid about death and what death had done to them, those that they had lost before Jesus came again. So the Thessalonians, these young Christians, they have these questions about, well, what about this Jesus? And what does it mean for me to follow him when we begin to talk about death and loss and eternity? So inside of their fear and inside of their worry, where is hope and where is encouragement? And the apostles' answer to that question, I believe, is profound and powerful. So let's begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. He says this, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, concerning brotherly love. Now, Paul says some good things about the Thessalonians. He says there's no need for us to kind of go through this detail by detail again because we taught it to you and we lived it among you and you started learning what it meant And in fact, what we've heard about you has been very good. You're learning how to show this kind of brotherly love toward one another. And in fact, to those in the greater region of Macedonia, everyone talks about the kind of love that the family of God has for each other there in Thessalonica. And I'm so thankful for it. He says, but this is the kind of thing that we need to do more and more. We grow in it. We learn what it looks like. And guys, every kind of twist and turn in life gives us a brand new reason to figure out how this works and how to live in brotherly love with each other in the family of God. It's not as if we sort of walk through one thing with someone and six months later, we got it, we're done. And from here on out, we know how this works. This is the kind of thing that grows with us step by step by step as we do it with each other in the body of Christ. And that word brotherly love, it really is the word Philadelphia. And the New Testament takes that word for brotherly love and applies it to the family of God, not just our physical families. So as Scripture speaks of this kind of love at work, It's a love of common cause that we have with each other as the church. It's even a love of friendship as we stand with each other in this world, supporting and encouraging each other. The New Testament uses this concept several times in speaking to the church of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, very straightforward. Let brotherly love continue. Just keep on doing it. Keep on figuring out how this works out. Figure out how you in the body of Christ can express brotherly love. Make sure that you know that when you join the family of God and you're actually an active part of the family of God, you're going to receive brotherly love. Don't neglect the kind of love and grace that is possible amongst brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. 
This is one of the profound temptations in the hearts of American Christians right now, and that is to just neglect the family of God. That's not what Paul wants done. It's not what the writer of Hebrews wants done. Let brotherly love continue. Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We don't often talk about this kind of love. As Christians, we like talking about agape love, God's kind of love, sacrificial love. And sure enough, the New Testament uses that a lot, about a love for each other and God's love for us. But we don't often think about this friendship kind of love inside of the body of Christ. But it's an assumed love in the New Testament. It's assumed that it's at work inside of the body of Christ. And it turns out that the ancient, Christian, the ancient Christians, the early Christians, they put a lot of effort into figuring out how the love of friendship works. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Augustine, he thought that this was such an important thing to the life of every human being that he believed that there were two things necessary for every human being. The first is biological life, your ability to breathe in and breathe out and eat and get up in the morning. So that's necessary for human life. What's the other thing that's necessary for every human being? Friendship. Those two things. This kind of love at work amongst us. With brotherly love, the church seeks the good of each other, of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So it's a love in which we're walking with each other under Christ, doing what we can and how we can to seek each other good as brothers and sisters. And then with this kind of brotherly love, this friendship love, we all hold something in common. In fact, we call this a a, a love of holding things in common. Now, what holds the church of Jesus Christ together is Jesus Christ himself. This is what we have in common. Even inside of this room, it's going to be very difficult to find even one of the things, even the love of the Denver Broncos. It's going to be hard to find that in common inside. Some of you weirdos wear your Cowboys jerseys here. I, I don't understand. That's okay. That's okay. God loves you. That's not what holds us in common. What holds us in common is our love for Jesus Christ. This is what holds the church together from culture to culture and language to language and ethnicity to ethnicity and through history is Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis is this marvelous way of taking these abstract concepts, the kinds of love that are at work among us and building these images that help us understand how they work So he speaks, for instance, in his book, The Four Loves. He says there's a certain kind of love that is romantic love, and that kind of love is like two people who look each other in the eye, and they are in love with each other. That's a romantic love. He said, but when we start to talk about friendship love, we're not looking at each other eye to eye. We're standing shoulder to shoulder, next to each other, pointed in the same direction for the same reason. And that is Jesus Christ. In a complicated culture, in a difficult and contentious culture, 
Christians are learning to love Jesus Christ first and then to join with others, our brothers and sisters in Him, so that then we can figure out what it means to live in His kingdom with each other and to show the rest of the world His kind of love. Now, concerning brotherly love, do it more and more, the Apostle Paul says. And then he takes this interesting turn. And it's the kind of thing he comes back to in this book and in 2 Thessalonians as well, but I want to make sure we pick up a couple of things. He says, now I want you to aspire to live, quiet, to live quietly, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, and to learn how to not be dependent upon others. That phrase, aspire to live quietly, it's a cool little phrase. Because that word aspire is a word for to be strenuous, to strive for. And so it becomes this cool little phrase. I want you to strive really hard to lead a quiet life. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? I love it. Well, as we put the context of First and Second Thessalonians together and we learn why Paul is saying some of the things that he says, we learn this about these young Christians. Some of them have become what Paul later on in Second Thessalonians is going to call busybodies. They had become meddlers and gossips in the affairs of other people, Okay. So it wasn't just that they were busy at work with their hands, they had become busy bodies, and now they were meddlesome in the lives of others. So Paul says, I want you, instead of striving to be a busy body and a meddler, I want you to aspire to mind your own business and work and lead a quiet life and and learn how to take care of other people. It turns out that some of them, and this becomes important for the rest of chapter 4, some of them had decided that because they believe that Jesus Christ was coming any day now, Jesus Christ is coming back soon, that they should stop working all together and just wait for Jesus to come. Paul actually addresses that in this chapter and in chapters to come. So instead of those kinds of lifestyles of becoming meddlesome busybodies or lazy sloths who've just decided to stop working, instead of all of that... Paul wanted to make sure that Christians would work hard to take care of their household and to take care of the household of God. In other words, you'll be too busy in gainful work to be meddlers and gossips and slaws. This is actually a concern for Paul amongst the Thessalonian Christians. So when they work well, the Apostle Paul says some things get fulfilled, some things work inside of our lives better. When they work well, they fulfill brotherly love. This is part of how we love each other is with our work. And they're going to spend their time wisely waiting for Jesus. So, we notice this in First and Second Thessalonians. When we work and when we work well, we exercise the kinds of gifts that God has given us and we do it for the common good. The gifts that God has given you to do and the opportunities that God has given you to use those gifts, we do it, we do it well, and we're giving those gifts back to our neighbor, to the rest of the world. When we work, we're able to take care of each other instead of taking from each other. I want you to learn to not be dependent on others. 
So when we learn how to work, it's not just that we work so that we can pad our savings account as much as we possibly can. We work so that we can take care of others instead of taking from others. This is how the follower of Jesus Christ thinks about work. And then Paul says it explicitly in this passage as well. When we work well, we actually live properly toward those who are outside the walls of the church. Our work becomes part of our witness to this world. And guys, the Apostle Paul fully expects Christians, when he's talking about living in such a way as to please God, that God's will is his sanctification in our lives, that we're becoming more and more like him, that we're living in a way that's actually a witness to the rest of the world. Paul fully expects the follower of Jesus Christ to grow in brotherly love, to work on what this means and to work on it with each other, to pray about it, to do it, to exercise it. He expects Christians to live in brotherly love, and he expects Christians to work well until Jesus comes. So this is where he goes next. What does it mean for us to handle this topic well? What does it mean for us not just handle love well and work well, but what does it mean for the follower of Jesus Christ to handle loss well? well let's begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 13, it goes like this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yes. <laughs> it's all true, guys. It's all true. We're not making this up. This day is coming, and it's meaningful, and we should encourage each other with these words. We do not want you to be uninformed. I want to make sure. There's an interesting thing happens in the way that Paul sort of puts this passage. There are two or three double negatives. I do not want you to be uninformed. In other words, I really want you to understand this. <laughs> I want you to be informed about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and how all of this works. So here's the overall concern that Paul has with this passage, why he puts this the way that he does. First of all, 
Paul had taught the Thessalonians that Jesus Christ was coming back soon to claim his church and then to set up his final and his eternal kingdom. That was an important piece of what Paul taught the Thessalonians while he was there. This whole matter of the day of the Lord, this whole matter of the end of the world as we know it in the beginning of Christ's kingdom, that was important to him. And so he taught it to these Thessalonian Christians. Now, as a result of that, several of them had done unhealthy things with that teaching, specifically things like they had quit working, and instead of being industrious with their hands, they had become meddlesome busybodies, or they had become sloths and lazy. They had done the wrong things with this doctrine, so Paul has to correct that with them. And then on top of that, Once other Christians began to die, the Thessalonians had grown worried about whether or not their loved ones were lost to them forever. They had learned this doctrine, and they had translated it in their hearts and minds that he's going to come back and he's going to snatch us away and we're going to be with him. And then they start to worry because their loved ones who are also Christians begin to die, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean for me to follow Jesus and handle death and loss and eternity, and will I see them again? So it becomes fear and worry in their lives. And And not just, well, so-and-so passed away, what happens to them? They're thinking, well, what if I pass away before Jesus comes? How does this work? So Paul writes to them, and a lot of the rest of chapter 4 and 5 and a lot of 2 Thessalonians is him clarifying this topic, this doctrine. And here he talks about the coming of the Lord The passage, or excuse me, the phrase that he uses more often than any other is the one phrase in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that is used most often to talk about this kind of issue, and it is the day of the Lord. What does the day of the Lord entail? And it turns out that it's not just a single day, it's not just a single moment, it's not just a single event, but it's this stretch of things. And a lot of things are involved with the day of the Lord and what it means. And it's important to Paul that Christians understand this. The topic of the day of the Lord and when Christ comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom and human history as we know it changes forever It's a confusing topic sometimes. I know that, which is why we're going to go ahead and close in prayer right now and just go home. Right? We're not going to do that. It can be confusing, and because of that, sometimes it's an ignored doctrine because it is. It's contentious, and it's just confusing. But I find this fascinating. We keep saying this, but recognize this in this context. The Apostle Paul was only there for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, But he saw this doctrine as so important that that's part of what he taught in those few weeks. So Paul considers it critical to our understanding of life in Jesus Christ and what we believe to be true even about human history itself as well as death and loss and eternity and what it looks like. And it turns out that this doctrine, guys, the way Paul puts it, and it's in a passage in this, it's it's in a verse in this passage that sometimes we miss because we get so excited by the time Paul's in the second half of this passage. This doctrine is based on the very core of the Christian faith, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's based on the very core of the Christian faith. 
So guys, Paul's primary concern as we begin to walk through this, packet, uh, this passage and we unpack it just a little bit. Paul's primary concern is that we understand the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of hope and encouragement. Okay? We grieve as people who have hope. That's where he begins. And where he ends this thought is, so encourage one another with these words. Can I be just completely honest with you guys? No? <laughs> okay. No, okay. There have been those in my life as a pastor who have grown grumpy with me because I have not used this doctrine to cause fear, anxiety, and division. That's not how I'm going to treat this doctrine because that's not how the Apostle Paul treats this doctrine. And yet, so often when Christians deal with this matter of the end of the world, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what the world is going to look like before that moment actually happens, it's done in a sense of fear and anxiety and division and sometimes even leads toward hate towards those who are outside the walls of the church. That's not what Paul is after. He says this is about hope. This is about encouragement. So we've got to make sure we keep that before our eyes as we walk through this passage. So that's what he says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope or who have no hope. Meaning this, followers of Jesus Christ grieve the loss of our loved ones as people who have hope hope. There is no reason for us to tell other Christians to not grieve their loss because someone is in heaven. Grief is real. Death is real. The separation that occurs because of it is deep and it is significant, and so we grieve. Jesus wept at the death of a friend, a friend that he raised from the dead. <laughs> But death is reason for grief. It's reason for process. So we do grieve. But there are those in this world who grieve in the context of hopelessness. That really is it. We grieve in the context of hope. We grieve in the context of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we know this, that physical death is not the end of the story for those who belong to Jesus Christ. We have a sure hope, an actual hope, not pie in the sky, not across our fingers and let's pretend that maybe it will happen sometime. We have a sure and actual hope that they are secure in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me, the more you pay attention to this one little detail, how often it shows up in this short passage. They are secure in Jesus Christ, and one day we will all be together in the presence of our Lord. God's going to show back up with all of his saints with him. And those of us who are still alive, he's going to snatch up to be with him, and we will be with him and all of those brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. Isn't that beautiful? So we grieve. We grieve in the context of hope. Death is not the end. And notice what he goes on to say. 
that you may not grieve as others who do not have or who, who have no hope. In verse 14, he says this, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul grounds this hope, Paul grounds this topic in our doctrine, what we believe to be true, what we know to be true about Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read a good study Bible on this, if you pick up a commentary on this passage of Scripture, a scholar is going to call this a creedal passage. That single verse is telling us because we believe this to be true about Jesus Christ, then we have hope. We know what this is. We know what this means. And here's what Paul says that grounds and secures our hope. Jesus died and rose again. The cross and the empty tomb, these are beliefs that are held by the disciple, the follower of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died an actual death on that cross, not a pretend death, not a spiritual death, not a metaphorical death. He died an actual human death on that cross. He was actually placed inside of that tomb and his body was prepared for its normal course of decay, but death could not contain him and on the third day he rose again, right? For we know that Jesus died and rose again, and in doing so, he conquered death. These are actual historical events that lay their claim on every human soul and lay the claim of authority of Jesus Christ on all of creation. One of those passages a little bit later on, the Apostle Paul says, and the Lord himself will descend with a call of command. Another way of putting that is that he's going to show back up again, and when he speaks, he will speak with authority over all things. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus died and rose again. The second thing that's buried inside of this little verse is this. Jesus is the promise of our resurrection and eternal life. He says, even so through Jesus, God will come again with his people. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is both the promise and the power for resurrection and for eternal life for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. If there's a single passage in the New Testament that digs into this topic more than any other single passage, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, you may even want to spend some time with that this week as you sort of reflect on this passage this, this morning. Part of that goes like this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam, the first man, all die. So all human beings have inherited death through Adam. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. The first to be made alive, so to speak, is Jesus. He will be the first fruits. Then at, and notice this topic again, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When he shows up, all those who belong to Christ will be with him. So Jesus himself is the promise of our resurrection and eternal life. And then this again, in this short verse of Scripture, the third basic idea is this. God will come again with all of his children in tow. Scripture teaches, Old Testament and New 
that there is coming a day when the Lord will return and he will establish justice over all of creation and his eternal perfect reign will begin. God will come again with all of his children in tow. So all of us will be with him. Not a single soul is lost. Nobody misses out on this moment if we die in Jesus Christ. And this will be a day of God's goodness, of his glory, and of his beauty. Thinking about the day of the Lord, I went back and I read through parts of the Old Testament that talk about the day of the Lord a lot. And there was a particular passage that grabbed my attention. It comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, and he's describing the day of the Lord here. And notice the beauty here. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. All of this is about the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God himself. So this is what Paul has to say to these Christians in their fear and in their worry and in their loss. And so we notice this for our perspective. The Christian's perspective on this life necessarily includes the next. As we figure out what this life is like, as we figure out what it means to please God, to be sanctified, to live in a way that actually is a witness to our neighbor, to find hope in our fear and in our loss, you see the truth about eternity with Jesus Christ comes crashing into this world and helps us make sense of our day-to-day lives. The Apostle Paul uses, I believe, twice in this passage this word, asleep, to speak of those who have passed away, those who have died in Jesus Christ. Now, to speak of someone being asleep or asleep with their forefathers, it's actually a common euphemism for death. But in the meaning of a passage like this, death is not permanent. You see, the idea is is that if the Lord tarries and I die, I will wake up in the presence of God. It's like sleep. Because I will close my eyes and I'll fall asleep, but the next time I open my eyes. Both matter. What God is doing in our lives here and now, I want you to live to please God, and your sanctification matters, and your witness matters. This life matters, and the next life matters as well. And we know that there are moments of real joy and real beauty in this life. We also know that there are times of real loss and real pain in this life. But there is an eternity awaiting the children of God that will outshine every ounce of joy and beauty that we experience in this life. And there is an eternity waiting the children of God that outweighs every ounce of loss and pain that we experience in this life. We will be with God, and we will be with each other. He says, so we declare to you a word from the Lord. In verse 15, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
What Paul does now is he lays out one particular moment in this larger event in Scripture called the Day of the Lord, and he speaks of when the Lord will come, descend from heaven, and snatch his children to be with him. Now, again, there's a lot involved in the Day of the Lord, and he'll go on to expand it further on throughout this book and all that it entails. But here Paul says that according to the word of the Lord, so he's not grounding this in his opinion. He's grounding this in what God himself has said will happen. The dead in Christ will be with God, and the living in Christ will be caught up to be with him, and we will all be with him together forever. And remember, the point of this, again, is hope. I want you to encourage one another with these words. The Thessalonians are discouraged. They're worried. They're afraid. They're frightened about those who have died. Some scholars even guess that based on the intensity of the persecution of this church early on, there may even be martyrs early on inside of this church. So the encouragement is this. They are already with God. And God is coming to get the rest of us. And when He comes, He's going to have everybody with Him. This is the encouragement that Paul wants amongst God's people. And this is a beautiful moment. The Lord Himself will descend. He doesn't send His ambassador. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send a bunch of angels. The Lord Himself will descend. And it won't go unnoticed. This is not secret. There's going to be a lot of commotion involved with this moment. The cry of command, His authority over all creation and all of humanity. The voice of the archangel, the trumpets of God will sound. Isn't that beautiful? And He says, and those who are alive at that moment will be caught up. That word caught up is interesting. One of the very first full translations of the Bible into a language that everyone could read was the Latin translation of Scripture. Now, here's why that's important. There's a Greek word for the verb cut up. It's harpazo. That word gets translated into Latin called rapare, and that's where we get the word rapture. So when we speak of rapture, we're using that train of words and we're speaking of this moment, to be caught up to be with Christ. And that's what these words mean. In fact, it's almost a violent word. It means to be snatched up. In some contexts, what this verb means is to be claimed by force and authority. It's like someone says, that's mine. There's going to come a day when God is going to grab you and He's going to say, you're mine. You're mine. He says, and the dead will cry and Christ will rise. You know, part of the promise of the resurrection and part of the promise of eternity with God is the resurrection of our physical bodies. So when we think about, and this is part of what Paul is explaining, what he's taught them, what he continues to explain, so I want to make sure we understand this because sometimes, again, there's still confusion and worry even in the hearts of lifelong Christians when we sort of encounter these moments of fear and loss. <clears throat> Scripture teaches, I'm going to say, a two, we're going we're to use this phrase, a two-step process, okay? 
Don't hold on to that too tightly, but I want to make sure that we understand two things about death and eternity with Jesus Christ. First of all, Scripture teaches clearly that when the child of God dies, they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. Scripture teaches this. In fact, Jesus says something fascinating while he is on the cross and having a conversation with one of the criminals. In Luke chapter 23, the conversation goes like this. And the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the day that this man dies. And that's the day that this man will be with God in eternity and in his kingdom. Paul, when he writes the Philippian Christians, is a little bit closer to the end of his life. He's in prison, and so he's reflecting on things a little bit differently, and he says, you know what? I'm torn between two desires. I really do desire to come and see you again and to be with you, but I also desire to be with Christ. So he says in Philippians 1 verse 23, my desire is to depart, meaning depart this life and to be with Christ. So if a child of God dies in this world, they are immediately in the presence forever of Jesus Christ. But then Scripture also teaches that there will come a point, the point described by the Apostle Paul in this passage, there will come a point when we will all live with God in resurrected bodies as well. We go back to 1 Corinthians 15 And in this passage, Paul is using the image of throwing a seed into the ground and sowing seed and what it grows into and turns into. And so here's what he says about our physical body versus our resurrected body. So again, our physical body goes into the ground and it's raised a different kind of thing. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The dead in Christ shall rise and receive this imperishable, eternal, spiritual body to be with God. Then we who are alive for our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. No child of God is ever lost. Every disciple is guaranteed eternity with Jesus Christ because of the power and the love of God. The Thessalonian Christians were afraid. They were worried. They were worried about their loved ones, maybe even their own lives. They were anxious about this Jesus that they were learning about and what kind of power He had over death and how eternity worked. And guys, Paul answered their fears with Jesus Christ. He answered their fears specifically with Jesus, the risen King. With Jesus, the risen King. Their hope, their encouragement, our hope, our encouragement is eventually and finally made possible by a Jesus Christ who really is still alive and on the loose and who is greater than all of our fears, even death itself. Because we know that Jesus died and rose again, this is what will happen. 
What are you afraid of? What produces worry and anxiety inside of your life? What makes you angry? Because anger and fear are married cousins in our souls. What produces anger? What worries you? What are you afraid of? It may be something intensely personal. It may actually be death and loss inside of your life. It may be some unshakable sense of personal worry and anxiety. What does the future hold? I have no idea what the future holds, and it worries me. Am I loved? Will I be taken care of? Is my life as significant as I want it to be? And on and on we can go with the kinds of things that cause us fear and anxiety and worry in this life. So it may be something intensely personal. It may be something on a grander scale as well as, as we watch the culture shift and change around us and we feel like and know that we see certain kinds of deterioration in the world around us. Racism, injustice, sexual abuse and assault, abortion. There is a segment of our culture that has a demonic death grip on the need to kill as many children as possible. And I call it demonic because it's demonic. Here's what angers and worries me right now. This is a morning for being completely transparent and honest with you guys anyway. Moral hypocrisy reinforced by power. That really frightens me. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary every year picks a word that they call the word of the year. And it's a word that sort of captures what happened in that year. And in 2016, the word was post-truth. And it is the tendency for people to not look at objective fact to determine the truth of things, but to base the truth of the matter on their emotional response to something. We live now in a post-truth world. This is the movement of our culture in our world right now. Not only have we lost the notion of truth itself, we've lost the tools to figure out how to get to the truth or even to care about getting to the truth itself. And guys, this is a recipe for profound disaster in our culture. It is a recipe for persecuting people just because they think something different than we do or you do or they do. This frustrates me. This worries me. What frightens you, Christian? What causes you worry? When we begin to answer those questions, it turns out that there's something else that we can do next, and that is, is we can start to talk about Jesus Christ. Not just a historical figure, not just a moral example, but Jesus Christ, the risen King. Because Jesus is alive, our history is not one of despair and hopelessness, but it is a history of redemption, healing, and of eternal bliss with God our Father. Because of Jesus, everything has a purpose, and everything can give us a glimpse of His transcendent presence of the Word of God, of life, and ultimately of love itself. All things lead us to the joyful moment when everything will be brought together in perfect justice and holiness 
in the presence of our Creator and Savior. The Christian vision of all things is triumphant because of the love and the power of God seen in the life, death, resurrection, and soon return of Jesus Christ. And there's coming a day when the Lord Himself will descend with a shout of authority, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet sound of God. And the dead in Christ will inherit their eternal resurrected bodies, and we will be caught up to be with the Lord forever. Let's pray.